Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. One of the more interesting stories out there in the marketplace as you look at individual companies is the Walt Disney Company. Here's a company that uh, a couple of years ago really made a 180-degree pivot in their business to really focus on streaming. Uh, and they're starting to get some rewards there. And there's absolutely nobody better to walk us through the Walt Disney story than Michael Nathanson. Michael's one of the leading research analysts on Wall Street. He's a founding partner and senior research analyst at Moffett Nathanson. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here. Some some numbers last night out of Disney. I'd love to get your takeaway because this is a company that right before our eyes is really changing its entire business, isn't it? Yep. Good morning to you. Hope all is well, Paul. Um, What's amazing is, you know, two years ago, I give them credit because two years ago, they made the really difficult decision of pulling back content that they had sold to other people and foregoing revenues and profits and cash and having to go build it themselves, right? And, you know, people were a bit dismissive of, of that decision, uh, doubting whether or not they could pull it off. And what they've done in, in the past, you know, two years is just remarkable. It, re- it really is. You know, almost 100 million subscribers at Disney Plus. Um, you know, they've taken control of Hulu from Comcast, and that's going very nicely. And what's really interesting to, to me is that the you know the focus from the investment community had always been on cord cutting and ESPN, is you know, which you know very well, and that doesn't come up anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, those questions are no longer relevant. Now it's really about the size and the the profitability potential of this new direct-to-consumer business that they're building. So, Michael, you know, obviously there are so many elements of this to talk about, but just briefly before we move back to what I'm sure will be most of the conversation, what does Disney do with its theme parks? Does it downplay them completely? Does it make them smaller? Does it stop expanding? Okay. Hi, Bonnie. No, that's that's a good question. Theme parks are really important to the Walt Disney Company. Uh, Here's why. Because they're a source of, of cash and they're a source of growth. If you look at theme parks the past decade or so, it, it has become the engine. So it used to be cable networks, but theme parks really became very important to Disney's financial picture. Um, they run the theme parks, you know, amazingly in terms of their ability to drive pricing and profits. And I think it, it remains a central piece of, of the Disney, you know, the Disney machine. I think over time, the question will be is when does Disney start opening up theme parks in other parts of the world? As you know, they're in Hong Kong and Shanghai, but, you know, is there a Latin American theme park coming? Is there an Indian theme park coming? Um, you, know, you know, I think as time goes on and streaming becomes more successful, more global, you know, maybe Disney starts opening up theme parks in other parts of the world. But so I think theme parks are core and central to what Disney does. And, Michael, I'd love to get your thoughts on their filmed entertainment business. Uh, you know, obviously just the dominant, dominant player in um, Hollywood with all the brands that they have. But now with this pandemic, um, the traditional windowing where they could make money in the theaters and then in pay television and so on, just, you know, window after window, monetize an asset. Is that permanently changed, Mike? Yeah, Paul, you know, that is permanently changed. Uh, we cover the theater industry too. And, and you know, what, what Wall Street has done is we've incentivized film studios that own DTC companies to go more direct, right, to go direct to consumer. And you're going to see less films being put into theater, um, only the big tentpoles and blockbusters. And even when they're in theater, the question is, will they be released day and date 
on DTC on direct to consumer platforms, right? So, you know, we are applauding uh, Disney's ability to grow their direct consumer business, and you know, Wall Street, as you know, because you've been an analyst like me for a while, has put a very low valuation on on anything relating to film, and a very high valuation on things you know that are streaming. So. There still be films and device question about theme parks. There still be films that benefit the entire Disney enterprise, you know, ten poles, you know. But those are going to be fewer and far between uh, for the industry. And Disney will move those movies much more quickly onto their own platforms to drive more value uh, for consumers and then drive pricing. How do they keep the quality up over time? It seems like now, you know, there's a writer's room for every, you know, New York condo building and they're necessary, you know, but yeah. we're getting content. I feel like the newer content out of Netflix, these these movies that they're premiering on Fridays, they're, they're just they're just OK. They're not great. Uh, can they keep up the uh, the the quality that will keep people uh, attached to Disney Plus? Yeah, you know, that is a great question that we don't get enough of. Um, there's just an assumption that, you know, content's easy to make and, you know, and there's not much of a of a, any kind of measure of, of quality, right? Um, if you look at HBO for, the, for many years, HBO just somehow year in, year out, produced great quality content. I think it comes down to... Um, the people who are greenlighting these these productions at Disney, they've got really strong creative executives, and then it comes down to um, the people you hire to actually make this vision, and 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 tell the story. Um, that's a question I had for the management team a couple quarters ago, where I said, "Look, you know, you guys, what Disney did really well was they made less films, but those films were better." Yeah. So I don't know. That's certainly a risk, right? When you expand. Your, your output, do you have the same quality control? We don't know. You know. HBO has done it, but then to your point on Netflix, Netflix has a lot of things that miss. Um, <laughs> it, you know, we're aware of the things that are really good because they become you know, front-page streaming, streaming you know, content. Yes. But there's a lot of uh, misses, and their model is kind of built for that because they take a ton of shots on goal with a huge budget. Disney's always been the company that's just had less shots on goal, and those shots are always gone in. It's a great question. It bears watching. But the people who are making those decisions are still top of their field. Yeah. And, um, and that, that hasn't changed yet. I'm more worried, let's say, at HBO and AT&T because Warner Brothers and HBO have seen a change of leadership. And you wonder, like, mm-hmm. will that lead down the road to a, a quality change? They need to clone Joel Kinnaman, I think, Michael Nathanson. He seems to be doing everything these days. Michael Nathanson, thank you so much for that wonderful analysis and context. Michael, a senior research analyst at Moffat Nathanson on Disney there, which is now down seven-tenths of a percent. Well, Western Union, we know the name for decades and it's a global name, just had earnings. And we'd love to welcome in now Chief Financial Officer Raj Agrawal, who is their Chief Financial Officer, as I already mentioned. Raj, just briefly, tell us about the trends that you saw during the pandemic. Did people need to use Western Union more? Hey, thanks for having me. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, We actually saw that the need to receive money during the pandemic over the course of the last 12 months was greater than ever before. Um, we also saw shifts in terms of how people were using our business. You know, we have obviously a very broad retail network, but we have also a fantastic, um, you know, well-growing digital business that is now present in more than 75 countries. And so 
we saw tremendous growth uh, in our digital business because people were looking uh, very frequently for online ways of sending money to their loved ones. And you can imagine that during the pandemic, um, you know, in many of these other countries were going through a very difficult time, which they continue to do so. And uh, the people who had the ability to send continued to send money and, and they used our business quite frequently. So, you know, we really saw a mixed shift, not only in our business, but also in the market overall, where digital parts of the market really took off uh, during the course of last year. Raj, uh, we still have persistent uh, higher than uh, we would like unemployment in the United States. How has that impacted your flows and your business? Yeah, I mean, we, we are very much a global business, uh, Paul. You know, we, we are um, present in 200 countries and territories around the world. Um, the U.S. is obviously a very important market for us. But, yeah, I mean, we, we certainly saw, you know, some impact from the unemployment. The pandemic is not behind us yet. Uh, we need to see how things play out. We are assuming that the second half of this year will be in a, in a better position economically, not only in the U.S., but also globally. Uh, as the vaccines are more widely distributed. So we're hoping for a better uh, second half economically. And uh, you know, I think that, again, people who have had the ability to send money, people who are uh, still uh, employed and making money, they, they've continued to use our business at a, at a high rate. And uh, we've also seen the amount of principal going through our business go up quite, quite a bit. Uh, we grew our cross-border principal by 12% last year whereas the entire market was probably down a little bit. Mm. So, you know, I think uh, we're still getting good, good traffic and people still have a need to receive money. I, I'm a customer myself of our business and I've sent more money in the last 12 months than I have historically because my, you know, my relatives have a need to get that money. So, Raj, why the decision to increase the dividend? It's a, it's really a, we've had a track record over the last 14 years. We've increased the dividend by in 13 of those 14 years. So we have a lot of confidence in the strength of our business. We know that we generate a a strong, you know, large amount of cash flow. Last year we generated about $900 million of cash, operating cash flow. We'll have another good year this year. And we think it's really what our shareholders want. And so we've raised the dividend um, in, in 13 of the last 14 years, and this is just a continuation of that trend. And, uh, you know, we're, we're looking for good things. We have a good strategic agenda this year, and uh, paying a good, healthy dividend is a key part of that for us. Raj, talk to us about the competitive landscape for Western Union. You guys have obviously been in this business for a long, long time, have tremendous brand value, but there's a lot of technological competitors, whether it's, you know, the apps, Venmo or something like that. Talk to us about the competitive landscape for Western Union. Sure. Yeah. As I mentioned before, we have a very large and strong and fast growing digital business. Our digital business will be about a billion dollars in size this year in terms of revenue size. And we are very focused on the cross-border remittance market, as you know. And there, there are many apps like Venmo is much more of a domestically oriented yep. product here in the U.S. So ours is much more about sending money all around the world. And that's really where our strength is. We have the uh, ability to settle in 130 currencies in a matter of minutes. We have the regulatory and compliance capabilities that go with it. Uh, we serve a number of different kinds of partners. We have a white label offering that we've, uh, you know, that we're partnering with, uh, you know, banks and uh, other fintech type players. So we can really be the back end provider to other companies, even other digital players that may not have the reach that we do. 
Uh, Saudi Telecom is one example that's been very successful for us in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we have another one in, in Russia with Spare, which is a bank, one of the largest banks in, in Russia. And so we really have a number of different angles. We have a, a branded WesternUnion.com offering, and uh, it's really, you know I, I use our services as well. And mm-hmm. you can you can initiate and complete a transaction in a matter of thirty seconds, and I can deliver the money to my loved one in India uh, in a matter of seconds. Very briefly, Raj, fees are quite high considering some competitors don't charge really at all. Are you going to do anything about that? You know, our, our fees are very representative of uh, the, the cost of doing business. So we, you know, it's not simple, it's not free to really move money around the world. Um, you know, to, to have the regulatory and compliance capabilities and to actually protect consumers in terms of when they send their money, uh, there's a cost of doing business right. in 200 markets, and that's really what we're doing. We're in the business to make money. Yeah, right? of course. And the other, others who are, are not charging a fee, it's not right. a sustainable business model for them. So that's really the way we look at it. Okay, Raj, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Raj Agrawal, he's a chief financial officer for Western Union. So we were wondering about this question. We have a little bit of an insight now into the U.S.-China relationship going forward. Joe Biden had his first conversation as president with the Chinese leader Xi Jinping and spoke of concern about China's coercive and unfair economic practices. Let's bring in someone who knows a lot more about all of this. Leland Miller is CEO of China Beige Book International. Leland, did you think the tone was just a little bit sharp, a little bit harsh? What did it indicate to you about the relationship going forward? Well, I think the call was essentially a box-checking exercise. Uh, Biden, at some point, had to talk to Xi, uh, but they don't have a lot to talk about in, in the early going. There's, there's nothing that, that, uh, you know, that the Biden administration wants to rush on in terms of China policy. Uh, the focus is, is quite clearly domestic and, and focused on COVID. So I think that the, the, the call set the tone that the White House wanted to, to sort of lay down. You know, we're going to be tough on you, that you are a big-time competitor. Uh, this is a change relationship. Uh, but it wasn't deeply substantive. It was just sort of a box-checking exercise. All right, Leland, at some point it has to be something more than a box-checking exercise here. Um, it appears that, you know, the U.S.'s view of China has changed since uh, the Obama years, the last time uh, President Biden, uh, you know, was uh, – you know, in in power there, as as it were, what do you think his policy will be going forward? Well, I think he he looks at his congressional uh, majority, uh, which is very slight, and and sees very little allowance for there to be uh, a let up in 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 toughness on China. So going forward, what he's essentially planning to do is to keep most of the Trump policies intact, at least for the short term, maybe even the medium term. Uh, now you're you may see some goodwill measures. You could see the the two sides decide to open consulates or re, you know. Re- reintroduce each other's journalists. Uh, but essentially, you're going to have the same type of China policy carry through for a while. Now, when Biden gets into more of a foreign policy, uh, you know, COVID's passed, and you start looking at other uh, foreign policy moves for the Biden administration, whether it's Iran, whether they, they get tripped up by North Korea, and all of a sudden the United States needs China's help, then you may start seeing some more outreach. But right now, there's very little upside for Biden to offer much to Xi. What will happen with the yuan, Leland, and what should we be on the lookout for? Is there any way that China can send a message by setting the yuan differently? 
Well, I mean, look, the, the reason the yuan has been surging uh, for, for, for many months now is because of good reasons, essentially. The Chinese economy has been healing much faster than, than the U.S. economy or, or, or other economies around the world. Uh, and you also have higher rates in China. So there's been an appetite for, for, for capital inflows into China. And, uh, you know, these are, these are good reasons, but they're, they're turning the situation into a problematic one for China because it's looking at its exchange rate and it's a little bit worried that, you know, it could be creeping towards, a, towards an area where, of real concern. So, you know, there are political sens- sensitivities around where they, they plug the, the rate. But r- right now it's not problem territory. But if you, if you see a reversal in the U.S. or you see some more bad news coming out of U.S. and Europe and more good news coming out of China, this is actually going to be a mixed bag uh, for Beijing and the PBOC. Leland, do you think the Biden administration will, I guess, re-embrace kind of an internationalism approach to China, whether it's some form of the, you know, the Pacific, you know, alliance? How do you think the U.S. is is ultimately maybe has the best shot of achieving some of its goals vis-a-vis China? Yeah, I mean, certainly the talking points are, you know, renewing alliances and in, in, in consultation with our allies. But, you know, for for all the talk about that, that's not a strategy. That's that's a process. And so what will the Biden strategy on China uh, and Asia writ large be? That hasn't written itself yet. Uh, I think it's easy to look at this uh, with, within certain parameters and say Biden's not going to pull back the tariffs, at least in the early going. Biden's not going to pull back a lot of the technology or export controls in the early going. You know, but how do things develop? Uh, from there, they haven't addressed it. Everything is part of a review. And now there's reviews to review the reviews. And so (laughs) this has basically been a giant punt by the administration. It's fair enough. They want to focus on COVID. Uh, But at some point, they're going to have to to, to address these, and they just haven't given a uh, you know a preview yet of where they're going. Is there any danger in taking too stern a tone with China? I mean, obviously, we saw at the end of the Trump administration that there were some sanctions placed by China on some of pe- the people that were in the Trump administration. I, I sort of wondered if that was a message to the Biden administration: Look, we want to start again. We want to start fresh we're done with the old administration. And it seems like the Biden administration sort of ignored that message if there was one. Well, I think they're smart to ignore it. Uh, One, because the Chinese react to strength, not weakness. But more tellingly, Biden does not have a tough on China reputation over the years. I mean, as a senator, he wasn't tough on China. As VP under Obama, he certainly wasn't tough on China. So this is a different political climate. I think what what the White House would like to do right now is set the stage saying, Times have changed. This president is not going to be weak on China. And I think that setting that down as sort of the baseline, the fundamental, you know, precept governing the relationship is actually important. And it gives them a little more wiggle room to do things, you know, either, you know, either strongly or, or, or more weak uh, going forward. Leland, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your perspective, as always, on all things China and Asia. Leland Miller. He's the CEO of the China Beige Book International, based uh, in New York. It is time for our weekly check-in with Lauren Sauer, Johns Hopkins University Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine. And for once, perhaps most of this conversation will be very upbeat. (laughs) Dr. Sauer, we have now enough vaccine, apparently, for everybody in the country by July. Does that tally with what, you know, your math says? I I think... um Conceptually, it does. So it's it's exciting to see that these contracts have been signed and that there's push to move uh, to create vaccine and move it forward into the hands of vaccinators. I think um, where we'll 
time will tell how effective our strategies are is in the space of making sure that people are there ready to receive it and that we have the, the healthcare staff to, to deliver the vaccine. So it's great to see those numbers go get up to be able to vaccinate the whole country and hopefully support vaccination efforts, efforts across the globe. Um, and the key will be to convince people to take it, um, especially those hesitant and hard to reach populations. So, Lauren, the, the image of the day for me as it relates to the pandemic is one I, I saw this morning, and it was of uh, Dodger Stadium parking lot. And they had all the cones set up, all the lines set up, all the tents set up, but it was absolutely empty because they had no vaccines. Um, what is your experience at Johns Hopkins in terms of supply uh, of vaccines and, and kind of the, the rate at which you are uh, receiving vaccines? Yeah, um, I mean, it's a, it's a, I saw that same image and it is like very telling of where we are right now as a country and, and even as a world um, in delivering vaccines to people. So the, the creation of the vaccine and, and how quickly we got there is so impressive. But, you know, here at Hopkins, we're doing, we're working really hard to vaccinate our healthcare worker staff just so that we can be ready if another surge comes, particularly um, if we see a surge after things like the Super Bowl or with variants entering into our population, we want to be ready and we want to protect our healthcare staff. That being said, I think what we're seeing is that there's this group of people who are ready and willing to be vaccinated. And then very quickly, once we get them vaccinated, the supply is spotty. So we don't always know exactly what we're going to get. Um, and I think that's the story across the board is, you know, you get you get what you get when you get it. And you don't always yeah. know what it's going to look like. Um, but then I think what we're worried about seeing is that we're going to get to a certain point and then suddenly there's going to be no one who's showing up for vaccinations. And so that's the, that's the place where we're focusing right now. Yeah, that'll be difficult. What do you do with those vaccines at that point? I mean, do they do they keep for a long time? Will they work next year if there's another resurgence? Uh, do you shift them off to other countries? Yeah, I think it's going to be probably a mix. Um, the different vaccines have different storage capabilities. Um, and what we really want to focus on is making sure we're not defrosting and preparing individual doses until we have identified enough people to take that whole vial or that whole set, right? Um, and so um, the concern, I think, is is that we need to focus more efforts on getting to those populations that aren't just going to be waiting in line and ready to show up for those vaccines. And I think we there is still a bit of a question on whether or not the variants will change the seasonality of the of the or the utility of the vaccine seasonally. So um, will we need regular vaccinations like we do with flu, um, or is this a once or couple times in a lifetime vaccine? I think you know there's evidence toward leaning towards that seasonality, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see. And so we want to use as much of the vaccine that's coming off the line as absolutely possible as soon as possible to get that protection level up um, and reduce the number of infections so our hospitals and our healthcare workers can have a chance to breathe. So, Lauren, if when it, a patient gets admitted, say, today with COVID, how is that experience different for that patient say, from a year ago? I think a couple of things are vastly different. One is how we manage that patient, right? So we've learned so much in the last year about the course of disease in COVID-19 um, and, and how to treat people who are sick with SARS-CoV-2. And so the, the 
hospital environment's going to look the same. The PPE is going to look the same. But but the what we do for those patients, what drugs are available to some extent for those patients, even where the patient ends up within the hospital or healthcare system, like we have the capacity to provide supportive care and get people home and out faster, which is always great. The less time you can stay in the hospital, the better. Um, and and I think we're seeing more of an ability to manage the surges in some places because we're getting better at treating the individual patient. But still, in many places across the country, our hospitals are overwhelmed with these patients. So some things haven't changed as much as we'd like them to. Lauren, do you imagine that schools will be fully up and running by September, by by the, the new semester? I think that's definitely the hope. I think we have a lot of work to do in building the trust back in the educational system. So both with the teachers and with the people who are sending their kids to school. Um, and, and we have a lot of education around what's safe and what isn't. So we want to get teachers vaccinated. We want to make sure that we have enough vaccine to support teachers getting back into the classroom and then getting kids back into the classroom. Uh, but we also have to think about what does COVID look like in kids? Can kids get their, you know, can kids pick up COVID and get their families sick? And, and so how do we create safe spaces and give the schools themselves the tools to to create the safest space for these kids possible? I think getting kids back to school should be our absolute number one priority in that, in that area. It's, it's good for kids to be yep. in school, and and we have a whole group of kids who are, have ex- not experienced that for almost a year. Yeah, so it has right. to be a priority. Hey, Lauren, thank you so much once again uh, for joining us. We always appreciate uh, your time. Lauren Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. We should note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies and this radio station. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.